Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Thank you for joining Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein and Bronstein, your sports writing injury attorneys, and Matthew Fairburn, who covers the bills for The Athletic. And draft week is upon us. Uh, we're going to talk about that briefly. Uh, later on in the show, we're going to have Danny Spiewak, formerly of WGRZ Channel 2, he is now a reporter at KARE in Minneapolis, and we're going to talk about his experience covering uh, George Floyd's death and the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, which concluded last week with some guilty verdicts and um, what, it, what it was like and what it has been like uh, to cover such uh, a global story uh, that has uh, had the eyes of the world upon it. Um, the eyes of the sports world will be on the NFL this week. The NFL draft begins Thursday night with the first round. The Bills currently in the 30th slot. Um, this is uh, one of my more indifferent work weeks. Um, we've talked about it before on the show. I, you know, mock drafts and all these types of things. Uh, I, I find it to be so much wasted energy trying to research all of these players that I probably will never write about again um, because it is folly to try to guess who the bills are going to take. And yes, you can have a piece ready to go. If you've written 30 of them, uh, if the bills take the, or let's say 10 of them and the bills draft one of those 10 people you happen to have written about, I could post that on Thursday night and say, Hey, here's that piece I did on Joe Tryon. Uh, but, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll open the floor up to, uh, to Jonah Bronstein and Matthew Fairburn and Matthew, you've spent a lot of time. Um, I'm talking about all this wasted energy and here you are having been doing exactly that. Uh, what your take is, is what you called uh, before we hit the record button, uh, the, Oh, no, wait, what did you call the indu global industrial draft industrial complex draft industrial we, complex. That's right. Um, yeah, I, I love the NFL draft. Um, I always have since I was a kid, like it was one of my favorite weeks of the year. Um, I dragged my dad to New York when I was a senior in high school uh, on a whim because they were giving out free tickets today. What was then day two of the draft? or maybe it had been split into three days by then. Um, you went into like Radio the, City Music Hall and did the whole into, thing? Yeah, we drove. It's about four hours from where I grew up. Um, you know, me and my dad got in the car early that morning, 
for like the late rounds of the draft. So we're like wandering Radio City Music Hall, kind of experiencing the whole thing. I miss it being at Radio City Music Hall for that reason. I covered it in college at Radio City Music Hall. Just, I, I really like it. I, I like the weekend. I like some of the buildup. Um, I like the stories in and around it um, from past drafts, from prospects and how they got there. But as I've now done this, this will be, you know, I covered the draft specifically in college. So I guess this is like coming up on like 10 drafts that I've covered. Um, I, as a, from a journalism standpoint, I find it to be a very odd time of year of what passes for journalism and reporting and finding out what's actually important. You know, of course it's entertaining. People love every little rumor, every little nugget. Uh, but there was a great tweet this morning from Ken Carmen, a radio guy in Cleveland, sports radio guy in Cleveland. He tweets this out. Uh, he has a list of Brown's leads from the 2018 draft. And I won't read them all, um, but it's every little news rumor on the Browns number one pick that year. And the amount of, there's got to be 20, 30 updates in here. The amount of nonsense from reputable national reporters on the number one pick, not the number 10 pick, number 15 pick, the number one pick all starts there. It's all nonsense until the last update. Adam Schefter says, um, you know, around the league, GMs expect Mayfield's going to go number one, like day of the draft. So we spend however long in the lead up of who met with who and who's interested in who. This morning, the report from Ian Rappaport at NFL Network was that the 49ers have narrowed down the number three pick to Trey Lance or Mac Jones, which... I think is probably garbage. I think that's probably like not true that they're just narrowing it down. It might be, but just that alone saying that doesn't really give me any context as to how it happened, what's going on behind closed doors. Cause if they're just narrowing it down, there's some conflict there, but he's not reporting the conflict. It's just that tweet more says to me, I, Ian Rappaport, have narrowed it down to these two players. And I single out Ian Rappaport because it's the most recent example, but there's a lot of that type of, I'm um, hearing lots of, you know, there's just a lot of throwing stuff at the wall this time of year that kind of makes me uneasy about how to navigate it, you know, as a reporter when you're like, you know, what are the Bills going to do at 30? Well, I don't know. Um, the Bills don't know. And who did they meet with? Who did that? They, they met with a lot of prospects, especially this year when they couldn't really do it in person. They just had to do what we're doing here on Zoom and they could do that with whoever they wanted. Um, so it's a, it's a weird time of year as a reporter. It feels a lot more like entertainment than news until you get to draft night. And like I said, afterwards, you know, looking back at old drafts, I find all those stories when you get the real truth of what actually was happening in the buildup to be really fascinating. I think there's an endless amount of stories there, but the build up to it, you know, you just find a lot of people throwing stuff at the wall, piecing together various things they've heard and packaging it together is something 
new or enlightening. And it's kind of like the weather, you know, people joke about weathermen if they're right, you know, nobody, nobody cares when they're wrong or whatever, you know, it's, they can be wrong as often as they want. NFL draft rumors are the same thing. You hit one out of 20 people are like, Oh, that guy nailed that. You know, mock drafts, the most accurate mock drafts are, you know, 75% wrong in the first round. So I don't know my long winded way of expressing some frustration for an event that I have um, cherished for a long time, frankly. I mean, like Matt said, I, I think the draft, the first night of the draft especially is fun and exciting to watch, but I don't, not covering the draft or not covering the bills in the off season, draft season, I don't want to spend really much time researching all the players and thinking about who they might pick and thinking about who other teams might pick and who might be available and who's a good value, who should go in the first round or the second round. Uh, you know, let's just see who the bills pick and then analyze it from there and not have to analyze the 31 players that they don't pick in the first round. Um, that said, I am pretty interested in seeing, and this is not really a first day of the draft story, but where the university of Buffalo players get drafted. If they get drafted, remember a couple of years ago, they had a lot of players, Tyree Jackson and Anthony Johnson, Khalil Hodge, that many people were pretty certain were going to get drafted. And we were questioning how high they would get drafted and all of them went undrafted. And now they have Malcolm Kuntz, um, Mel Kuyper's, projecting him as a defensive end to be a second round player. I think he's top 50 in his board. Coyote Awasika, Jared Patterson, the running back could be picked later, but still could be drafted. I think it'll be interesting to see if it happens again, where uh, the university of Buffalo players don't get drafted as high as some of us think they might be. Um, it'd be interesting to analyze why that is, why this team keeps having success that doesn't translate onto draft day. What was Man, your reaction to seeing Coons that high, Jonah? Um, well, I wasn't totally surprised because I kind of thought he was the best draft prospect on the team throughout the season. Uh, it was a little higher than maybe I thought Mel Kuyper or some of these guys would put him because, you know, University of Buffalo players tend to not be rated that highly. However, I do remember that Mel Kuyper was pretty early on the Khalil Mack bus and that he had him projected to go number one at one point when other people were projecting him a little bit lower in the first round. And Malcolm Koontz, he's not Khalil Mack, but he had a Khalil Mack-type impact on Buffalo's defense over the past year and a half. And I think that, you know, he could be a bit of a poor man's Khalil Mack if you're looking to make that kind of comparison. And I'm not that surprised that he's somebody that draft analysts and teams like. I, I will be a little su bit surprised if he goes a high second round like Mel Kuyper ha has in a recent mock draft, but not terribly surprised if he goes somewhere in the top three or four rounds. I don't see him anywhere on Dane Brugler's top 100. I'm I think Mel Kuyper his... has him listed a lot higher than other guys do. I think Brugler has him somewhere. Um, oh, he's got, I'm sure he does. I'm just taking but a look. I'm pretty at sure he, he will be the first UB player drafted. As great of a season as Jared Patterson had, Cody Iwasique was an All-American and a three-time All-Mac player and a big part of their success running the ball. But I don't think either one of those guys or anybody else that UB has will get drafted before Malcolm Koontz. Yeah, the Jarrett Patterson conversation has, you know, people have generally accepted that he's probably a day three guy despite all the production. So he's going to have to, have, you know, same, same 
thing that's been his story all along is, you know, prove everybody wrong and, you know, be better than, you know, the, the experts say that he is. And it's kind of an interesting, an interesting part of the draft as well is, you know, you mentioned not wanting to research a bunch of players, the bills aren't going to pick that part of it doesn't totally bother me, you know, kind of hearing, you know, seeing what the class looks like. It's a, it blends college football, you know, into, into the NFL. And so there's a lot of interesting conversations that can happen around that. And, but it's also hard as a, as a reporter to be like, Oh, this guy, you know, has X, Y, and Z, you know, there's a select few people in the media and Dane Brugler, who, who Tim mentioned is probably one of them who do that with the same eye that a scout does. And with a lot of the same information that scouts have because he digs it up and he has those conversations, but then there's, you know, they're again, more throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks um, and having an opinion for the sake of having an opinion. Then there's the people that lean on the scouts and give them anonymity to say whatever they want about these kids that then can derail into narratives that, you know, Dan Orlovsky you know, mentioned that Justin Fields or these maturity and work ethic concerns just sort of mentioned it offhand on ESPN one day that, that that's what he was hearing. You know, that's what, that's what some people were saying. And it becomes a narrative for a while. And, and to what extent teams accept that and to what extent it impacts the public perception of a guy like Justin Fields, I don't know, but I think, I hope that there's more people at the very least, because there's more people who do try to do the work uh, at a more amateur level and, you know, see what some of the anonymous scouts say, they'll, they'll refer to guys as the Alabama guy, the, they, they strip away all, you know, personification of these guys. And they're just uh, the Alabama guy and the Ohio state guy. And the, you know, and they say some things that are objectively just like false about their playing ability or what they do. Oh, this guy put on a bunch of weight. It's like, no, he didn't. And when those quotes get published from anonymous scouts, I think it really brings down the value of that type of reporting when people can look at it and say, well, this isn't true. And like they all don't the, need to uh, accept it as fact. All the draft nicks out there that were, that were comparing Josh Allen coming out of Wyoming to Ben Roethlisberger because of the size. Uh, and I actually wrote a story about it and in which I interviewed Brandon Bean and we were getting a good chuckle is that if you couldn't recognize that Josh Allen could run, then yeah, he was Ben Roethlisberger, strong arm, big, tough to bring down in the pocket, that type of stuff. But if you knew that he could run, then people were saying Cam Newton. And there were a lot more Ben Roethlisberger descriptions out there, I think at the time, than there were Cam Newton. Now, eventually the Cam Newton comparison, you know, came to be, but um, yeah, that was the original comparison was, he could be another Ben Roethlisberger. Just for the record here, uh, Dane Brugler has uh, Jarrett Patterson as the 12th running back uh, in this year's class, projects him as a fifth or sixth rounder. Malcolm Kuntz, according to Dane Brugler, the 33rd edge rusher, uh, projecting him as a seventh round pick. So big disparity yeah. between Kuhn, between uh, Brugler and uh, and Mel Kiper regarding and Malcolm, Malcolm Kuntz, Kuntz has been injured throughout the combine, pro day, pre draft prospect process. So that could affect his draft status and maybe not allow him to be picked quite as high as Mel Kiper. Some people have him projected to be. Well, I think it's and 
leads to an interesting conversation about the bills and the number 30 pick is that disparity that you talk about um, is going to exist for a lot of players in this draft when there was no combine. There was a lot of prospects who, you know, played shortened schedules, conference only schedules. There were opt outs. There's a lot fewer players in this draft, which I find to be a really interesting phenomenon. Like the amount of the defector reported that the amount of prospects that had signed with an agent as of early April, it was around a third of the usual number of prospects that had signed with an agent, which is a huge difference. And so from rounds, it might not even start in round two. It might start late in round one where that lack of clarity about what you're getting, you know, is, or the, the difference of opinion on what you're getting from different people might be pretty significant. And I think that's going to make for kind of an interesting couple of days when teams are figuring out, do they trade back and try to get picks in next year's draft when maybe they'll have a more complete process and are, are there going to be teams in this draft even willing to part with future picks to, to take chances on guys? Brandon Bean said that he thinks that the fewer number of players doesn't impact the draft a ton in the first seven rounds. He thinks it's more going to be an issue when you get to undrafted free agency. But with that big a number, I have to think it will creep into, you know, the amount of play, the players that are getting drafted at the end may not be as of, you know, high quality, you know, uh, from a prospect standpoint as they normally would be. And, you know, it, it creates an interesting conversation at the number 30 pick, like what, how confident are they going to feel compared to most years? Are they going to feel maybe they want to trade up and get rid of some of those picks later in the draft? Because as it goes on, you're just going to be less and less sure, uh, which is true every year, but probably even more so this year. Well, that's what I'm wondering as you bring that up. The Bills are a team that over the years, over the last couple of years, have gotten harder and harder for rookies to make the roster, or it looks that way. So maybe they don't have seven roster spots for seven draft picks, and maybe this is the type of year where you invest multiple picks in moving up and getting the best possible player that they can through that, you know, draft math, whatever calculations, whatever pick you can acquire with your second and third rounder being thrown in. I think at the very least, I don't know how eager they'll be to get rid of like a two or three because generally you think in the top 100, you're going to have a chance to find a decent player. Uh, it's been mixed results, obviously, over the years for the Bills and other teams, but day three is, is even harder. And I think this year, day three will be particularly hard. They don't have a pick in the fourth round. They have two in the fifth you can't necessarily use fifth round picks to move up very far in the first round, you know, maybe a spot or two. Uh, I don't even know if you can pull that off. So then it becomes, can you use those fives to get into the fourth or the third? Uh, you probably, you can use it to get about halfway into the fourth round, somewhere in, in the mid fourth round range, but yeah, it's then are you comfortable giving up a, a third to move in to the early twenties? to get somebody that you feel really good about as opposed to getting stuck at 30 and feeling like maybe, you know, there's somebody that you're not thrilled with or move back out of the first round and have a few more, you know, dart throws on day two, where you say, 
All right, well, let's get a few more bites at the apple here in the in the second day of the draft and not worry so much about the third day of the draft. So it could go a lot of different ways. Brandon Bean has never traded down as member of, as as general manager of the Buffalo Bills. So that would be a first. He's traded up quite a bit. And, you know, that's his philosophy. If he likes a guy, he's going to go get him and he's not going to sit there and wait. So smarter move maybe to trade back and try to get picks next year. But, you know, Brandon Bean's philosophy, uh, what's more likely to happen might end up being a trade up. How about the Mike Ditka move? You put all your picks into one trade, get as high as you can, and then take the rest of the weekend off. Yeah, just call it. That'd be good for for us. Kyle Pitts. (laughs) Go up and I don't know if they have. I mean, I'd have to. They have cumulatively, according to the draft trade chart, um, pretty close. They're pretty close to the bottom of the league in terms of cumulative draft value on the chart with their picks. So I don't even know how high they could get up. But Kyle Pitts has been the a hot name for Bills fans, which is like amazing to me. That like I honestly have not watched Kyle Pitts other than when he was on in the fall and Florida was on and being like, wow, that guy's really good. Like I haven't gone back and familiarized myself with Kyle Pitts to the extent where I'm like, this could happen. And there's Bill's fans that have fallen in love with the guy. It's like, I would be shocked if they can even get up high enough to get him. Everybody loves that guy. You know, yeah, he right. might yeah, go number everybody. four overall, but yeah, the, I, as a, from a professional standpoint, I'm all for the move so that um, one big Kyle Pitts story and then call it, call it a, a nice weekend, get out well, on the let, golf course. Since people like our journalism discussion sometimes, maybe one of you could talk about what's it like trying to write a story about a pick that gets made at 11.55 when you know, you're not on newspaper deadlines, but both of you have had to do that in the past. You know, what's that like? waiting all night and then having to write at midnight about what, who they drafted and do that really fast. That's where I think writing online helps you. You can write a capsule. uh, You can do a little bit, but if you're, if you have to fill 30, uh, 30 inches, you know, if you have to fill the space in the paper, then you're in trouble online. I think, you know, slap something together uh, with highlights of this, uh, whoever they pick, where it fits some bullet points, uh, chances of breaking the starting lineup uh, and uh, and then start concentrating on writing for the next day, you know, the website, you know, making some phone calls. But yeah, if you're writing for a paper, you're in rough shape at 30. And the worst is when you're not expecting them to pick and then they trade back into the bottom of the round. I think Trent Edwards might've been a guy that that happened with and you weren't expecting that. And then at midnight, you got to write about this quarterback that you maybe don't right. even know. Where JP Lossman. Yeah, Trading right. back into the end of the first round. Um, real quick before we get to uh, Danny Spiewak, because uh, this doesn't get talked about a lot because player trades just aren't that common in the NFL, but Brandon Bean has done them. Um, what are some tradable players that the Bills might have to, and I'm not talking about getting up for Kyle Pitts. I think that's a, you know, that's a pipe dream, but let's say that they do want to move up. Uh, who Do they have players that they, that, that they could do without that uh, would be that another team might take a fancy to. Probably you're looking at Devin Singletary. Would, Devin Singletary is the first one that came to mind. Cody Ford. You would, it would need to be a Cody re- Ford. recent draft pick 
you know, somebody that's young and still has some value that way, you know, the guys, everybody was always saying it about Trent Murphy. And it's like the guy you probably want to get rid of as a, a fan, like teams aren't going to be tripping over themselves to get. It's the guy that you're like on the fence about, oh, is it too soon to give up on that guy? You know, like, and that's Devin Singletary, um, Dawson Knox probably falls into that camp. Cody Ford, like you mentioned, that 2019 class, um, you could even go to 2018 and say Harrison Phillips or Taron Johnson, you know, it would have to be those types of guys that are close to having their contracts expire or have enough years left that people are going to want them. Cause otherwise you're probably waiting to the deadline to get rid of a veteran that somebody really wants, um, you know, a piece of, but yeah, I think Singletary is probably the one because if the whole running back conversation has been a hot topic of whether they should pick a back in the first round and, or, you know, even, on day two, again, as they've done in back-to-back years here. And if they do, I think it opens the door to, to trade one of the other running backs because uh, I don't know that you need all three, or I don't know that you're going to take one early and not give them the ball. So, yeah, I think that's probably the most likely name. I don't know. They don't sound ready to give up on Cody Ford. Um, so unless they – they had some sort of offer that that blew them away. I'm not sure that that would happen. Players aren't as valuable in football as they are in other sports um, because you already know what you're going to get generally. It's not like hockey where you have younger players who are in the minors and on development and scouts might see something. They might feel like they have a leg up. By the time a guy gets in the NFL, he's been around for even a couple of years Hell, even by the time he's drafted, I think teams know what, what they're going to get. And uh, yeah, they generally don't have a lot of value. So if you're a, let's say you're a, a Sabres fan uh, who knows how hockey trades work and you say, how about packaging 30 uh, and Devin Singletary, Dawson Knox and Cody Ford for fifth overall to get uh, uh, pits not going to come close to happen. I think 30 plus Devin Singletary, Cody Ford and Dawson Knox probably moves you up to about, and I'm taking a step 23, you know, it's, it's not a lot of, it's interesting. You have to put a, a round value. And like you said, it's kind of rare that it happens, but like Cordy Glenn, when he got traded, the bills were able to trade, uh, it was 21. They had 21 and 22. I think they traded 21 and Cordy Glenn for 12. And on the trade chart, that meant Cordy Glenn got a value of like a second round pick, um, you know, on the numbers. So what value would you put on Devin Singletary? Like what round value? Because he was a third round pick at probably the peak of his value, right? Especially as a running back first year in the league, all that. I wouldn't say he's outperformed that spot. So maybe you give him a third or a four. Cody Ford has dealt with some injuries, was a second round pick. You're probably looking at more of a three or a four. And Dawson Knox, day three pick probably at this point, the way that he's played. Still young, but somebody would give you a a four or five maybe. So then you're saying, all right, a one, a three, a four, and a five. 
for number four. Assuming people, somebody would even want all of those players because that's the other thing. A lot of teams would rather just have a pick of their own and more of that rookie contract. Getting up to wherever Pitts is going to go will require a future first. That That's where the conversation starts. Like you're throwing in your first this year and a first next year and then some. Uh, like you said, that other smorgasbord of players gets you up, you know. I guess if Cordy Glenn can get you up almost 10 spots, those three should be able to get you up like 15 maybe. So then you're in the middle of the first round and Kyle Pitts has been gone for 10 picks. So yeah, maybe toss a future one on top of that, but I wouldn't, I, the trade up makes more sense into the early twenties than it does all the way into the top 10, because I think I don't get the sense that Brandon Bean feels that desperate. He's got a, a an itchy trade finger there to, you know, he, he likes picking up the phone and making deals, but not out of desperation. You know, he didn't even give up a future first round pick to get the quarterback. And, you know, so I think from that standpoint, you're probably the first round pick back then was worth a lot more than it is now to the bills because they weren't any good. Now, if you're the bills trading next year's first round pick, their hope is it's a 30 or a 28 at worst, you know, they're gunning for a super bowl. I mean, this is way more realistic of saying, you know, our pick is going to be not a good one next year in the first round, way more than Doug Whaley and his philosophy when he traded for Sammy Watkins and said at the lectern, essentially, well, we're making the playoffs next year anyway, so it's not going to be that great of a first round pick. We're going to be picking late. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a late pick until it's not right. Like that's how it always works until Josh Allen, you know, something happens to him in, in September and all of a sudden that's a top 10 pick that you really could have used uh, to get that edge rusher you've been after for a while. Um, also those first round picks, one of them turned into Stefan Diggs. Like if you're in the business of wheeling and dealing your first round picks, you're essentially using two of them to get one player who you think is going to be really good. Whereas last year they were able to take one of those picks and turn it into a player that you already knew was really good. Look at what the Rams do. They've traded all sorts of first round picks for players that they just know are good uh, because they have been picking late in the first round or they've been banking on picking late in the first round and they get, you know, Jalen Ramsey um, for, for a first round pick. I mean, Deandre Hopkins went for a second round pick. So if you start dangling a, a, first round pick out there you know during free agency or even before the season or at the deadline you can get a pretty good player um the trade in the future one thing is for a non-quarterback is risky risky business well we said it was wasted breath and here we are a half hour later out of breath it's a half hour that no one's ever going to get back but let's, uh, let's take a quick break and uh, come back with Danny Spiewak. We'll have a journalism discussion. We'll get into um, what it was like to cover George Floyd's death in the Derek Chauvin trial. Right after this, on Tim Grant and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK. CPAs and business consultants. 
CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Uh, joined by a new F, his first uh, appearance on uh, Tim Graham and Friends. It is Danny Spiewak from KARE in Minneapolis, formerly of WGRZ Channel 2, uh, familiar face there. Uh, but uh, Danny's joining uh, Jonah Bronstein and Matthew Fairburn. We're going to have a, a journalism conversation. Thank you and for having me. We'll talk me. some sports too. But uh, Danny, how have things been for you? It's been good. It is nice to be back amongst Buffalo company. You know, it feels, it feels natural. Like, you know, like I'm back home. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's obviously been a busy, busy year um, with a lot happening in the twin cities, but, um, but no, things are, things are good right now. It's nice to hear from you guys. I wanted to have you on to discuss the covering the Derek Chauvin trial. And it is, uh, it, it, it's one of those things that you may never experience ever again. And that the average journalist probably will never experience in his or her careers because you may cover a uh, police brutality case or death in custody case or accidental shooting or whatever. But when the world is watching, uh, I'm sure that that brought on all kinds of different um, pressures and stressors and I don't know, maybe in some ways it made it easier. Maybe, maybe there's an autopilot involved, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to load up the, the first question too much. Uh, so what, how would you, what would you say this was like, if anything else in your career? You know, it, it was, uh, sometimes it was hard to process because, and maybe you can feel the same way. And having worked in Buffalo and also in, in the Twin Cities, there's, um, you know, we're, obviously there's a lot of national news that happens here, but it almost in many ways, it was hard to process just how much of a worldwide story it was because when you're working in local news, it's your community, you know, you're feeling it and it feels like, you know, it's happening locally. And it, it is, there were times where I'd kind of step back and I'd look at my Twitter feed or I'd look at the national and think, you know, what's happening here is all over everyone. You know, it's all over everybody's feeds. It's all over everybody's you know, news. And so it was hard to sort of process just how big of a story it was while it was happening. Um, but now that a couple of days have passed, um, you, you, you do think about the historic nature of it. And, and there was, I think, a little bit of pressure just because um, you knew you had to get this one right. And it was such a sensitive topic. And um, especially to so many in our community, um, just uh, it, it was one that you knew you had to get it right. You had to do it sensitively. You had to do it, um, you know, you had to do a good job on it. And so there was a little bit of pressure to that, but it also as a journalist, it kind of reinforces why you do this because it was a time when our community needed factual information. They needed, especially during the trial, they needed to understand what was happening. Um, so, so it was a mix of that pressure, but also kind of a, a pride in what you're doing and knowing you're doing, you know, you're doing it for the right reasons. But, um, but it, it's been it's been a tense year, of course, with with from the beginning and you know even when there was that you know that period between the the incident 
the unrest and the trial, it was always kind of looming and still is and brought up a lot of conversations in the Twin Cities that um, I think for a long time people weren't necessarily having. And now they are, which has been, which has been a good change, but it's just been a, it's been a long year for a lot of people. And, and I think there was a real tension really building to last, last Tuesday. And now that it, you know, is, is not behind us here, but is sort of into that next phase, I think there's a little bit of a sense of relief in the Twin Cities um, in some ways. Going back to the day of uh, Derek Chauvin's death, um, how were you, from a professional standpoint, introduced into this story and your station's coverage of it? Yeah, I woke, it was a, so obviously George Floyd died on a Monday evening, uh, about between eight and nine o'clock was when the initial incident happened. There, there wasn't, I was working that Monday night, it was Memorial Day, but there wasn't, I'm not even sure if, a, I'm not even sure if anyone knew what had happened until well after our 10 p.m. newscast had finished. So I didn't hear of anything. And I think overnight, I think we had crews that were monitoring that there had been a death in custody, but the video hadn't been necessarily, either it hadn't been posted or it hadn't been shared widely until the morning. So I worked the night shift. So of course, you know, I sort of wake up a little bit late, you know, 10, 11 a.m. And by that point, it was the top story on every single news outlet, New York Times, NBC, every, you know, anything you can imagine was the top story was what had happened with Minneapolis police and who is now identified as George Floyd. So the first thing I saw was that Ben Crump was representing him, which signaled to me that that was a big deal. That he Did I say living. Derek Chauvin's death earlier? Oh, but you, yeah, but I knew what you meant. Yeah. Did I, well, yeah, but uh, I, yeah, you knew what I meant, but yeah, yeah, I knew what you meant. Yeah. Um, Sorry, but, uh, George Floyd's death. Yes. Yes. Uh, so it was by probably Monday morning that I realized, you know, that, wow, this is, you know, this is bad, especially the video, you know, we all saw it and it was um, just egregious. And I think that was across the board. It didn't matter what political party, it didn't matter people, I mean, I think, you know, we had members of both parties in, in the state legislature saying we've got to, something has to be done. Um, and the, that first day was sort of, I think, a processing of what in the world happened here. The officers were all fired that day. And then it turned to, you know, there were um, gatherings down at 38th in Chicago. So within a couple of hours, by three, four o'clock, I was down there. Um, and this is within 24 hours of the incident. And there was a, a growing crowd, but it was just sort of like a spontaneous gathering. There wasn't necessarily an organizer. Or it was just people kind of, in many ways, coming to grieve because they had seen this video. And I remember we interviewed these, you know, families and people had brought their kids and just saying that, you know, they just, they, they couldn't sleep because the, the video was so disturbing to them. And um, that evening, four, five, six o'clock, more and more people started to come. You know, it got to hundreds and, you know, more than a thousand, I think at some point. And um, there was going to be a march to the third precinct and everything, you know, at that point was very peaceful. Um, and that first night, uh, there was just so much confusion and anger building. And uh, that first night, it, it sort of shifted about seven, eight o'clock where, um, you know, suddenly you did have a, like some confrontations with the police and the tear gas started flying. And then really from there to Wednesday, Thursday, the precinct was on fire and it was just uh, sort of a blur the next week, week and a half, um, you know, it was kind of crisis mode, but there was so much going on because there was so much, there was so much anger over what had happened. And then there were, were so many legitimately peaceful protests and large gatherings of people with families and um, then kind of night would turn and then there were sort of, I know a lot of community members and, and community leaders felt that it was sort of being hijacked by sort of outside groups that were, were starting the riots and things like that. 
Um, and so that was confusing for a lot of people, but um, it was, yeah, it was definitely a, um, you know, I was out there every single night, watched the precinct burn and it was surreal. It was very surreal. And I know a lot of people in the, the community felt the same way. And it was hard, again, as I said, hard to process that it was such a worldwide story um, that led to so much and then led to protests really around the world. And, um, you know, it was, it, it, you had to take a step back after a couple of weeks and think, wow, this, you know, this really happened in our community. What did it look like for you in your newsroom in terms of, you mentioned you were out there every night for a couple of weeks, but this went on, you know, for the better part of the trial then, you know, spills mm -hmm. into we're going on, you know, almost a year. Was this like an every day type of story? Did you have to switch back and forth? I know you got to wear a lot of hats in local news. Like how many people were on this and, and how did you kind of stay on it for, for that long? I would say that it, um, it was an everyday story for like, like literally for like, a, you know, probably about a two, three weeks a month. And then as we got into it, it wasn't that necessarily every single day was a story directly about um, the death or about uh, the arrest of the officers. It sort of morphed into almost, it almost impacted every facet of society in the Twin Cities. So there was a big thing that after um, you know, after the initial incident, city council members started to call for wanting to create a new public safety division that would replace the police department, um, which was very controversial. And so then most of the summer, there was a lot of back and forth between what's the right way to approach police reform. The mayor was not on the same page with the city council. So, um, so it became a thing where it was almost like every, no, not every story, because there was, of course, still COVID-19 and, and there were other things happening in the community, but I would say like 75% of what you were doing throughout the summer was somewhat related to, to some kind of fallout or, you know, rebuilding from the unrest or um, police reform or, you know, disputes within the community about the best way to do it because um, the, the plan to remake the, the police department got a lot of backlash from some community members saying this is just going to backfire on us and it sort of became, yeah, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that, that a lot of the stories we did for many months were really somehow connected to it, even if indirectly. How was, or how, how were you treated out in the field um, and online, you know, on Twitter, on social media? Um, obviously, there was a lot of, you know, the attitude towards journalists has been uh, shifting here in recent years. And like you said, this is not this was a worldwide story, um, which you're probably not used to that type of, of reach. How would you, how did you handle that part of it? And how were you treated in the field and on, online? You know, for the most part, it was, um, I, it, you know, a lot of times you were able to kind of, kind of, you know, it'd been large crowds and sometimes people would say things and, um, you know, either side, you know, whether it was, um, you know, kind of like, it, it didn't matter. There were, there are always going to be people that are sort of you know, just upset that you're there. Um, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of that, but um, no, nothing, nothing totally major that I can recall. Um, I know that as the the summer went on into the fall, I know there was a, there could be some animosity toward us. I think just because there was so much happening in the community, and you know, we're we're a local news station, so we're just trying to do the best we can. And um, I think sometimes we get connected to like like media outlets that we're not a part of. You know, like we're just the local NBC affiliate. We're not, you know. We're, we're just trying to do the best we can. And I think, um, but I, I think for the most part, the, I, no, I didn't experience anything, um, you know, too out of the norm for that. How did this impact your relationship or maybe not, maybe relationships, not the right word, but how did this 
impact how you kind of sourced this story? Like what, what, what was that like? Because I know police sources can be pretty vital to local news operations to get, you know, a lot of uh, stuff that's happening, but obviously it becomes a, a tricky sourcing relationship in a story like this one. How did you navigate that, that part of it? That's a really good question because, um, you know, I think this shined a light on um, just the way we operate, you know, because originally, and this, is, this was mentioned at the conviction, you probably saw this, but originally the, the, the killing of George Floyd was described as a medical emergency that had happened in custody. And um, I think that shined a light on um, just the fact that you do have to be vigilant and it, it sort of reinforced our role as journalists of, you know, we're, we're here to question authority. And um, I know a lot of people brought that up because obviously what was being said to the public did not at all, you know, conform with what had actually happened. And, and if not for that video that the 17 year old had shot, you know, who knows how long it would have taken to get body camera video out. Who knows if, if, you know, who knows what would have happened. And so I think it, um, that definitely shined a light on just that, that extra need to be vigilant in just what our job is, you know, um, that, that our job is to question everything that comes to us. And, um, and that, that is the one that kind of, kind of, um, kind of sticks out to me was that the, the initial reporting of the incident. That is a great point because especially when it comes to the police and journalism as an institution, I don't, maybe laziness is too harsh of a word, but when you get a press release from the police, in general, it's just taken for granted as the official source and not to be really trumped by anything else that you can, you know, obvi obviously, the, if there's a, um, somebody who's been arrested, they have an attorney and you may even have a, a reason to think, well, of course, they're going to, you know, claim brutality or civil rights violations or things like this. But in, in the case of George Floyd's death, it was a blatant, if not fabrication, a total miscommunication as to how that was presented to the media. And, but it, it, in the end, it's the media that looked bad for taking their word for it, even if it was for a couple hours. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think that extends to, um, you know, not just a police department, but any taxpayer funded entity or, um, you know, any political organization. And, and it's not necessarily like a, like a, like a, we're taking a stance against this organization or this entity, public entity. It's more just, you know, it, it does kind of show that, you know, and, and you mentioned that too, like it's, yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily a laziness or is it more, um, you know, sometimes we're strapped for time. Sometimes we're not thinking about it, but I think we certainly are now. And, sometimes and, I think it's ingrained in us as human beings from a very young age, especially sure. We're, ta we're talking about four white men here on this, on this podcast um, that if you're raised with certain access or privilege, I'll even use that word. Sure. Uh, there's the feeling that police are to be believed at all. You know, they are, there's a virtue uh, to law enforcement that not everybody or every uh, segment of society would also just immediately, and then we maybe get into the discussion of our newsrooms diverse enough and, and things of that nature. And I won't put you on the spot there, but let me ask you uh, this, Danny. Um, I don't know that if they teach these classes at, at Missouri, um, but to be able to go down to um, 38th in Chicago uh, or go into certain neighborhoods and do these stories, how did you feel or how, what enlightenment maybe did you go for or try to 
try to do so that way you could go into these places and and learn and understand without just being and I think you'll take this as a compliment a young looking white guy coming down into a neighborhood and and helping and letting the people that you're interviewing understand that I'm here to learn or be a, at least a conduit or a channel to share your message with people um, without letting your whiteness become a, a hindrance. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just listening, you know, just, you know, not um, not trying to be overbearing and, and telling people what, you know, how you feel. It's more about how, how do they feel and really just listening and then letting that reflect in your reporting. So that first Tuesday night, so it was the, the, the night after George Floyd was killed. And um, it was, um, you know, we, we still, I was pretty adamant about let's, we had to make sure we put together a story, you know, not just, um, you know, kind of like a live report of here's what's happening, which that of course was included because there was a lot going on that night. Um, but I, you know, made sure we had a minute and 32 minutes of really just reaction from people and just letting them tell the story. And, um, you know, just, you know, me, me stay out of it because, you know, it's not my place to, to tell, you know, not my place to share, to share that because it's not my story, it's theirs. So I think the, the, that was the biggest thing is in just listening and then just trying to just trying to be a real human being, you know, and, um, you know, just just making that connection just like a, you would with anybody. Um, so I think that was key. And and that's something you kind of you kind of learn, um, you know, not just in a, in a situation like this, but just no matter what story you're doing. A lot of times that's the you know, it sounds cliche, but it's just like just just trying to be a good listener. That is is a, is a huge part of this, I think. When um, when George Floyd's death obviously was going to be a movement. It was going to be larger than just a man dying in police custody, which happens unfortunately a lot, but this became a transcendent story. Uh, and it crossed over into sports, of course, you know, there were, you know, the, the NBA and LeBron James and people speaking out. And I, and the reason I brought up that question is because I had a conversation with the Bill's safety, Micah Hyde regarding it. Um, and, and here I was 48 years old at the time. And I felt like I've waited way too long in my life to actually ask someone of color. And at least in this, something this touchy, I've had these discussions before, but how do I have, how do we have these conversations? How can I help have these conversations without stepping in it, you know, without coming off looking like I'm disingenuous or I'm, you know, or, or I have a, a, like if I'm genuinely curious and want to be educated on something like this, how can I do it without being offensive really was the conversation I had with Micah. And it really was, you know, incredibly educational. And, and the things that he said to me, I think about even on non-controversial issues when I'm talking uh, with somebody who, who doesn't look like me, because I think that these are, these are things that, uh, that probably should be considered. And that's what a transcendent story like George Floyd's death hopefully can, can help us in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we saw that here as well. I think um, just, uh, and that's like, I was mentioning, like, you know, you know, for so many months and continue that even if a story isn't directly, directly about the incident, it, it changed so much and changed so many conversations. And we saw that in the sports world here as well. Um, and, um, and it has really, I think, um, kind of brought to the forefront, a lot of issues that, not just Minnesota, but America has been dealing with, but, but specifically Minnesota, because they have, you know, we have issues here that I think have been boiling for a long time. Um, and so that, and, and, and you saw that in really every facet of society. So I think, um, I think those same conversations were happening here too.
Danny, I found a, a story you reported for WGRZ in 2016 about how often Buffalo police were shooting animals and maybe specifically dogs. What do you remember? Maybe not that story, but covering cops and courts and crime in Western New York. And were there any similarities, parallels, connections between, you know, what you've been reporting on in the last year in Minnesota? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up um, because that was uh... – yeah, that was sort of, um, and remember, that was uh, just a couple years after Ferguson. So these conversations were still happening. Um, but um, what was interesting about Buffalo is what we found, we did several reports about their use of force, was that um, at that time, they had gone a long time without having a, um, a police shooting. That obviously changed um, after I left. Um, but, uh, but at the time, yeah, we, we found that they were using their firearms to shoot dogs, like uh, a lot, as you saw in that story. Um, and they ended up training after that story. They just specifically training, and not just because they didn't, you know, want to brutality against the animals, but also because every time you're doing that, you're putting somebody else in the house at risk if you're using your firearm to contain what you see as a dangerous dog. And, you know, they were getting sued for that sort of thing. And so it, it sort of was, um, those were those earlier conversations about just, just use of force. And um, there are definitely some parallels. I think it's hard to compare necessarily departments, you know, whether Buffalo or Minneapolis are similar or not. Um, but I think it was interesting kind of seeing that post Ferguson, what some of the conversations were about de-escalation. I think those have, those have only increased now, you know, after everything that's gone on here over the last year. So I almost see it as like a continuation of, of some of those earlier conversations, but, but it is interesting. A lot of those things we covered in Buffalo, um, kind of are, um, you know, you, you, you can, I, I use that a lot because I had covered use of force in Buffalo and I'd covered some of their training methods and that helped, you know, coming into this kind of knowing what, what um, some of the reforms were and then knowing, you know, whether or not it's been implemented. And I think that in Minneapolis, that just continues to be a conversation. What did the, uh, the death of, of Dante Wright at that, you know, time when all eyes were on the trial how did those two stories coming together at the same time uh, impact what you were doing day to day, um, trying to report on the trial? And then I'm, I'm assuming it just amplified everything when, when it happened again, not too far down the road. Yeah, that was really tough for a lot of people, I think, because uh, the other thing about the Twin Cities and Minneapolis is um, there was a lot of just uh, trauma associated with the trial because um, we were re reliving what had happened last year. Um, it was such a tough time for so many people. And then you've got, you know, you, you have to sit there and watch on, you know, whether, you know, cause whether you're watching it like me, like every minute of it, cause I'm covering it, or if you're just a member of the community watching it and maybe seeing bits and pieces of it, you're watching that body camera video again, you're kind of reliving that whole thing. And then for that to happen like 10 miles away from where the trial was going on it, um, I think everybody was already in such an emotional state that it was just like, I, you know, a lot of people just couldn't, may not couldn't believe it. I shouldn't say that, but people were just like, it happened again at this time. And, um, and I think it just, I think you're right. I think it just sort of added to that feeling of like, you know, something, something has to change from, you know, from a lot of community members perspectives and, it, and they're different cases, but, um, but the issue is the same, obviously. And so I think, um, I think that it just, you know, it did when the, when the, when the conviction came down, I think a lot of people thought, you know what, this, this is what a lot of people had wanted, but they knew that there was a lot, you know, left to do and that this was, um, you know, this was one snapshot of one case, but there was so much more to it than just one case. What has the aftermath been like the past few days since Derek Chauvin's guilty verdicts? We've seen, I think that um, 
there was some sense of relief from a lot of people. Um, and I think um, there, it's been hard to, it's been hard to tell because I think a lot of businesses had boarded up, obviously you still see some boards around town, but I think slowly those are starting to come off slowly. The national guard presence has kind of gone away. And um, so there's been a, you know, a, a sense of there's been calm the last week. Um, but, but it's still lingering there. And, you know, we've seen the national news stations have kind of let, or networks have, have left and sort of the spotlight, maybe not fading away, but, but it's sort of shifting. Um, but now we're kind of left to deal here in the Twin Cities with like, you know, like you said, the aftermath of, you know, what's left to do. And um, I think a lot of uh, people in the community are, are feeling that like, okay, we've gotten, we've gotten that, you know, that's done, but, you know, we got to keep going. It's sort of the sentiment, I think, from a lot of people. You mentioned all the national crews leaving. What was it like to cover a story with everybody in town, uh, every from around the world, um, and competing? Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe you have to take it out of your mind that you're competing with all these other. But at least you're competing for a place to do a stand up. I mean, there, <laughs> there are people sure, yeah, all that, over town. Yeah, there was a um, there was a garage downtown that was uh, about uh, you know overlooking the the courthouse, and obviously you can't really they were only allowing like one or two pool reporters inside at a time, so really nobody, almost nobody, was allowed in the uh, the actual government center in the courtroom. Um, but there were there was this garage that kind of became the media area, and you know you'd drive up each you know each level of each ramp, and you'd see CBS and ABC and NBC and all kinds of, you know, just media from around the world, you know, people speaking different languages. And that when I heard somebody doing a live shot in a different language, that was kind of when it was like, wow, you know, these are around the world, people are looking at, you know, what we're looking at here in the Twin Cities. So that was a little bit surreal. Um, and I, I don't know if there was a, I didn't feel necessarily a competition with them more so that I felt maybe a little bit of added pressure, because you're like, okay, this is, you know, like I was saying earlier, this is a big story, and you got to make sure that you don't mess it up. Um, so there's a little bit of that sense, I think, but, but it was really quite something to just see, just to see the level of interest from around the world and so many media outlets. Um, just like I was saying too, about, you know, it's like, it kind of not at all comparable, but when Buffalo had this, you know, the seven feet of snow and Lester Holt is out there doing a live shot, you know, from, from maybe Hamburg or Lackawanna, you're kind of like, wait a second, that these two worlds are merging. The national news has become the local news. And there was that same feeling a little bit here where it was like, you're covering the story from a local perspective, but you know, it's so much bigger than that. Throughout the entire timeline of the, of the story happening, uh, what was it like trying to get unique or original content as a, as from a coverage standpoint of doing your job and coming up with something that the, that somebody else doesn't have? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, it was hard because especially with the trial, the, the access was so restricted that um, my colleague Lou Raguse, who also worked in Buffalo, obviously, uh, when we were all there, um, he is really good at has, you know, a, a great job at sort of kind of having those developing sources and that kind of thing. Um, and so he, he really, I think, led the way at our station for a lot of that. Um, in terms of me, I think um, a lot of it was just trying to think of like, who else has this impact that we haven't talked to yet? And it had such wide ranging impact, whether it was community members or those who had their businesses damaged or destroyed in the unrest or, um, you know, just from a court perspective, a lot of times it was just thinking like, okay, we've talked to this person and this person, but who's still left to, to kind of get their reaction. And there was just an endless amount of stories. 
um, from, from, you know, even months later, you know, before the trial, it was like, we were still uncovering stories of people that had had some kind of impact from this. So I think the biggest thing was just sort of like, you know, just keep reaching out, keep finding people that were impacted. Um, but that was tough though, because when you get a big story like this, the media can get almost a little oversaturated. There's so many media outlets that want information. So it can be tough to make sure you're doing original news, but, um, but yeah, that, that kind of, from my perspective of just trying to just kind of keep going with, um, you know, finding anybody who was impacted. What's it like doing this in a, in a place where um, you're not from Minneapolis, correct? Right. Um, no. So, you know, it's kind of a new home for you. Um, you know, you've been there a few years when, when this happens, but um I don't know if the emotional piece of it, you know, seeing this happen to a city um, can be, I, I know so many uh, reporters here in Buffalo being from Buffalo, you know, and, and kind of, you know, knowing the ins and outs of a city and things like that. What was that like to, to navigate? And did you find any of the, the emotions difficult to compartmentalize as, you know, a lot of this is happening? I'm not sure exactly where you live, but, you know, kind of in, in your backyard. Yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of people felt that as well, um, that, um, you know, it's, it's different too for a local news station because, um, you know, nothing against the national news, you know, of course they've got a job to do and they, and they come in and give the national perspective, but um, from the local standpoint, it is, you know, it's your community. So you're, you're there before you're there during and you're there after. Um, so I think the, the biggest thing it did for the local stations, I think, is it just sort of um, like, kind of like I was mentioning earlier, just shined a little bit of a light on some of the issues in Minnesota that, that people have known have existed for a long time, um, but this brought it into the forefront a little bit more. And, uh, and that was something that I think a lot of people in, you know, in um, at least at the local stations sort of were dealing with. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. It is, you know, I'm obviously not from here and from Missouri originally. I was in Buffalo for five years and had been here for, I guess, uh, almost two years when this happened. Um, but, but yeah, it is, um, it, it is a, just uh, something to, to think about when it's your, when it's your community and you start, you feel a personal stake in it. You know, you feel a per personal stake in wanting to create change and wanting to tell the story in the right way. Um, and it just means that much more when it's, you know, you know, you're going to be here afterward and um, you know, no matter what happens, you're not going to be, you know, catching a flight, you know, the day after the trial, you know, you're going to be here and you know, this week we'll be doing stories about it next week, next month, next year. Um, you know, it, you know, it'll always be there. What do you view as kind of your role as a as a reporter in exactly what you're talking about? That there it will be the story next week, next year. And you mentioned there are issues that need to uh, be addressed and things that need to change. But there's probably also that balancing act of like you know you said there's some trauma involved here for a lot of people, and seeing this every single day on the news, you know, might not be the um, the perfect way to, to, to get the point across either. But what do you view as, as kind of your role as a reporter in continuing the conversation and making sure that those issues are continued to be at the forefront? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I, I think it's, um, it's all about just sort of continuing to build connections with people. That's another thing, you know, it's such a basic part of our job, as you all know, you know, just, um, building relationships with, you know, you can call them sources or they're just people. And a lot of times, you know, not, it, there's the word, I always think it's funny and the word source is always like kind of this connotation of someone, you know, very, very secret and important. Um, sometimes the important person is just that person down the street, you know? And um, I think about like, uh, there's so many people doing such good work around here. I think of this, um, 
there's a, a there is a, a church or a lot of churches that are doing this, but there was a couple of churches in Minneapolis that were kind of letting their doors be open for people that if they needed to come in and watch and talk to somebody, um, they could do that. And I kind of look at our role as like, you know, how do we connect people with people like that? You know, the people that are really trying to, to, to look out for their neighbor. Um, you know, how do we facilitate, facilitate those conversations and those relationships? And how do we build trust with our audience um, you know, to know that when, you know, when a big story happens, you know, that we're, um, you know, that we're trustworthy. So a lot of times it's just like, just doing a better job of just getting to know the people that are, that are our viewers and living in our community. How much more of a Minnesotan do you feel like now compared to a year ago? You know, it's interesting. I, um, I, don't, I that's a hard question to answer. It, um, I, I have an interesting relationship to the Twin Cities. My grandparents grew up here, left after the war. Um, and, um, I, you know, other than that, I, I don't have a huge, you know, some family that lives here, but, um, but, um, it, I don't know. I'm kind of stumped on that one. I sort of have, uh, mixed feelings about whether or not, I, you know, I'm not from here, but I've also kind of been here through all of this. And so I think I, maybe I feel a little more, um, kind of almost like more like I've been in the, I don't know, how to, I don't know how to explain it in the right words. Um, you got to know Minneapolis in a pretty intimate way through this. Yeah. Story. Yeah. In a time of crisis. Yeah. So I think I feel like probably like that'll never leave me, you know, like that'll always be a part of um, sort of my experience here that that, that happened. And um, it, it does make you feel a little more like, um, you know, but now I want to see it through. Now I want to see what what happens now. And now I'm invested in that. Not that I wasn't before, but there. So, yeah, maybe that's the best way to answer that is there's a some investment of wanting to see, you know, you know, so we've been here in this crisis and, and um, you know, what, what is next and, you know, how is this going to carry forward? I think. You're uh, you've written a book about some Minnesota history, right? It comes out in September. That is true. Yes. I appreciate that. I, um, yeah. And that obviously is, uh, you know, not related to uh, TV or Miss Station or anything, but uh, just a personal project that I did. My, my grandfather was a member of the freshman, uh, the freshman team in 1941 at the university of Minnesota that won a national championship, finished undefeated 15 days before Pearl Harbor. So I, um, you know, ever since I moved here, it kind of was a fun side project that turned into a lot more than I imagined. And uh, yeah, a full length book and interviewed some of the, you know, family members of the players. Unfortunately, all of them are, are gone because they would all be in their late nineties or you know, early hundreds at this point. Um, but that was fun. And that was a fun way to kind of connect to the, to my past roots here that, you know, no one from my family, you know, direct, descendants you know grandparents haven't lived here since like they moved you know in 1947 um but that was a fun way to sort of reconnect with uh with minnesota roots and and yeah that comes out in september so that was a fun thing so are you a sports writer now would that be i guess you could yeah maybe we call it sports history right <laughs> close enough i don't know if i could call myself a sports writer but uh do you have but, a uh, you have it. a favorite anecdote or two from the book that you uh want to tease yeah, you know, the, it was really incredible because, uh, you know, the, not the Bruce Smith that Buffalo knows, this is not the same one, but Bruce Smith was the, the Heisman Trophy winner in 1941. He was a halfback from a small town in Minnesota, and he accepted the Heisman Trophy two days after Pearl Harbor. December 9th, 1941, got up, uh, you know, like shortly before President Roosevelt went on air with his first fireside chat since Pearl Harbor. And here's this kid from Minnesota. Um, you know, giving this rousing speech about, you know, America coming together to, for the war effort, you know, in the light of the attack. And um, that the book opens with that and in the introduction of just that, that moment of crisis. And 
um, a kid from Minnesota being the kind of the catalyst for all that. So there were so many stories of, you know, and like a lot of the players ended up like, you know, because the season ended November 22nd, they were undefeated and there was obviously no playoff system at that time. So they were, they were ranked number one undefeated unquestioned national champions in the eyes of the associated press. And then Pearl Harbor happens. And a lot of them just ended up like a couple of them ended up at Iwo Jima. One of them ended up being a minesweeper at Normandy and won a purple heart for saving his shipmates after it exploded. Um, so there were all kinds of stories about just sort of how they went from college football champions to, you know, having to serve in the war. So that was fascinating. From the gridiron to the battlefield, Minnesota's March to a College Football Title and Into World War II is the name of that book by Danny Spiewak. And there's um, a Marv Levy reference. He, uh, Marv actually was really interested. The Bills put Marv was 43. Yeah, Marv, <laughs> Marv was, uh, he told me he was a 16-year-old in Chicago listening to Big Ten football as just a Big Ten faithful. He remembered everything. And uh, the Bills put me in touch with him very kindly and he read the book in four days and offered an endorsement. And uh, I use a quote from him that you, I'm sure you will all remember that the Super Bowl quote, I think it was probably that fourth one where they, someone said, you know, is this a must win? And he goes, no, World War II is the must win. Um, and I actually use that quote in the introduction because I thought that just encapsulated everything. You know, here was somebody that served in the Army Air Corps, somebody who, you know, knew war as a young man, um, even though he wasn't, you know, he was stateside, but, um, but he understood that sacrifice and, uh, that was fascinating. It was a real thrill for me to have him read that. So, I know the Bills are your adopted team. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've uh, since given them up uh, for, for another, if for the Vikings. <laughs> uh, I don't know. But uh, yeah. any thoughts on what the Bills should do in the draft this week? You know, I haven't followed it close enough to – who are they kind of looking at? Because I bet you if you – they said – Everybody. Was, they're they're like, picking yeah. 30th, so it's, – It's hard to pin down. Yeah. I, you know, I – I, it's funny because I grew up in St. Louis, so I was a St. Louis Rams fan. Not anymore. Don't follow the Los Angeles at all. So the Bills are definitely my team. But, um, but you know, I don't know. I, I, uh, after last year was so much fun, I kind of like, I got this sounds horrible, but I kind of like, I, I kind of like put it away. I was like, okay, well, that was great. Let's, you know, let's see what they come back with next year. So I haven't followed the draft at all. So I don't know. I can't make an educated opinion on that. Well, you're originally from St. Louis. Uh, mm -hmm. the only market uh, that has lost two NFL teams right, and yeah. <laughs> last two markets that you've worked in are a combined zero and eight in the Super Bowl. So Isn't that incredible? maybe there's another right. book uh, right. to, be, uh, <laughs> to be found in all of that mess. Right. That is funny. You mentioned that though, because it's like two generations of St. Louisans have had to deal with that. You know, I hear about that from my own parents, you know, the, the, uh, the tragedy of them losing the Cardinals and then, you know, going through it with the Rams. And I was in Buffalo at that time. Um, but uh, when the, when the Rams left, but still it's uh, yeah. I, you know, I don't remember that kind of brings me back to the um, gosh, would have been 2014 ish when uh, there was the whole, you know, Bon Jovi and um, you know, right after Ralph's passing, you know, what, what was going to happen with the bills. And uh, yeah. So I, it was interesting seeing that from the Buffalo perspective of like, we cannot let this happen. And then seeing it happen in St. Louis was uh, was an interesting contrast, I guess. Well, your fandom and uh, when it comes to the NFL has been cursed. But right. Yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll break that curse next year. Who knows? I'm a native Clevelander. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew covers the Bills. Well, right. I do too. So does Jonah. Jonah's from here. He's had to live with all this. Uh -huh. Matthew and Matthew grew up in in Massachusetts, 
but he adopted the Jacksonville Jaguars as his team. So he doesn't even, <laughs> he can't even say, you know, Hey, I, I enjoyed some a Patriots run. You know, he, right? he had it right in his hands and he, it was all happening right it. in front of me. Is that like uh, the Mark Brunel years, you know? Like oh the, yeah. Fred yeah. Taylor, Keenan McCardell, that whole right? crew. All the Jaguars Patriots weren't crazy. good. Patriots right? weren't good at that time. And then they very quickly were by the time I was in like middle school, it was like, yeah. Oh no, I've made a big mistake here. Yeah. But then you too take it back on point. your word at that point. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's too late at that point. You can't be like, Oh, I'm a Patriots fan now. It's right. Yeah. <laughs> too late. But it all happens for a reason. Cause it saves me a lot of face out here when it's like, exactly you know, with uh, the way Rodak was treated, you know, saying you're from Boston around you're here like, is not yeah. a, <laughs> it's not a good thing. But when I can say, look, I, I mean, no harm. I was a Jaguars fan as, uh, as a boy. That Nobody's was a thrill. Like, threatened. <laughs> like seeing that turn, you know, because I think, especially when I came to Buffalo, um, it, it was, you know, 2013 was the first year I got there and um, seeing that turn and come full circle last year of like all of a sudden everything had been flipped on its side. It was the Patriots struggling and the Bills triumphant. It was quite a thing to watch just as somebody who spent time in Buffalo. It was like, uh, yeah, it was like, I feel like I'm sure the city was waiting for that for so many years that it had, you know, finally had toppled that. And so, you know, we'll see what uh, kind of what that carries into next year. Danny, thanks any for joining sense. us I'm and sorry. talking. Oh, no, go ahead, Jonah. Yeah, just a throwaway question, but any sense of how Minnesota Vikings fans feel about Stefan Diggs in the year he had? Oh, it's a, no, it, yeah. You know, you know, it's interesting. You don't hear a lot about that. I don't know if I'm not tapped in enough to the Vikings fans here, maybe because I'm working remotely. I'm not talking to as many of my coworkers as I once was. You know, I almost never hear his name mentioned, but I'm sure that everybody's watching that thinking, you know, uh, let a good one get away. Um, but I almost, you know, it's interesting. I almost never hear anything. I almost have never hear anything, not good or bad, just sort of like, a, you know, I just haven't heard much of that. And so maybe, you know, maybe if the Vikings started to get things going, that maybe it would be, I don't know, more of a ubiquitous conversation around town. But, uh, but yeah, that's a good question, though. If it was the yeah. other way around, I think we'd hear a lot about it in Buffalo. Right, for sure. Yeah, there is nothing like Buffalo fans. I mean, it's like, you know, and the Vikings have obviously got their, you know, they've got a, a devoted fan base, but there's something about Buffalo, even just the city. I mean, not even just from a sports perspective, there's just something about the pride of Buffalo that you just don't see that anywhere. And it takes just when I was leaving to see like, you know, like, you know, what, just, just the tight knit community that it is, um, is just, I don't know. Now I'm just kind of rambling, but, uh, but it, it's all, it's all connected bills, not bills, you know, whatever it is, Buffalo is a place that has like no comparison. I think what helps uh, Vikings fans reconcile losing uh, Stefan Diggs is the fact that they drafted Justin Jefferson with the pick that they got from the bills. And so, and, you know, and, and we've lived this, you know, from, through Buffalo sports fans for at least I have for 20 years, the guy who wasn't happy or wanted to go, it's like, fine. See ya. Mm -hmm. You know, it was the same thing with even, in the in the af immediate aftermath of Chris Drury and Daniel Briere leaving the Sabers, it was oh, too much. They're not worth that. They're not worth what the Flyers and the Rangers gave them. See you later. And then years later, it's like oh, where the. But at the in the moment, it's like we we never wanted you to begin with, and now we got this rookie, and he caught ninety balls or whatever it was. But yeah, on Diggs is is special. I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Now I'm rambling. No, <laughs> no, I agree with you though. It's kind of, there's a sense of like, a, you know, maybe this is just the way it was supposed to work out, you know, and I, maybe there's that sense, maybe that's why you don't hear anything here, you know, that um, I, I do remember after that, when that 
when it first happened, I was kind of like my worlds were colliding because people from Minnesota and Buffalo were both talking about him. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it's sort of like a, you know what, maybe this is just the way fate was going to have it. Well, I hope you have an event free spring and summer, uh, or at least, uh, you can cover, uh, you know, uh, to, to use the, the, uh, the joke from Anchorman, hopefully you get a cat show, a cat fashion show to cover. Yeah, that'd be or great. Some, yeah. You know, just some human interest stuff to kind of decompress. Sure, sure for sure. I, uh, no, I really appreciate you having me on. This is, uh, it's always great to talk with you. And uh, yeah, we'll see uh, kind of what the rest of the summer holds. But I think, uh, especially, you know, with depending on the vaccine news, hopefully there's a feeling of kind of, uh, you know, maybe a little more uplifting feeling, not just here, but across the country. So, Danny Spiewak, reporter for Minneapolis television station KARE. Very kind of you. And um, hopefully we get to cross paths again. Sounds good. I'm sure we will. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Danny. Take care. Thank you.